This podcast is brought to you by Touch Alignment. Welcome to the listeners of Tal Radio English. This is CXO Showtime with Akshay, your host. We are going to continue with Bill Diamond, our guest, who is the president and CEO of the SETI Institute. We have been having a very interesting conversation. And Bill, thank you for staying with us for this episode as well. As I was thinking through with the kind of research uh, activities that are currently going on and uh, a lot of scientists working uh, all across, which means that there is tremendous amount of data being generated. Yes. They need to be uh, to collaborate data to come up with some meaningful uh, pieces of information. With advancement of technology and with advancement of uh, technical uh, streams like artificial intelligence and machine learning, how are you leveraging AI ML towards your applied research? Yeah, that's a, another great question. Um, these are, are really important tools because, as you rightfully point out, um, all of these endeavors whether they're things like the Curiosity rover on Mars or the Perseverance rover or the James Webb telescope or radio telescopes on Earth, they generate massive amounts of data. And in fact, if you talk to scientists at NASA, they'll tell you that there is more data owned and held by NASA that has never been looked at than there is data that has been studied. Um, and so this is a problem that I think is, uh, you know, an enormous and real problem um, across all lots of different aspects of, of society and technology that, you know, we're generating more data than, than we have the means and the, and the time and the, and the tools to look at. Um, but machine learning and artificial intelligence techniques have come along together with, you know, more massive um, computing resources, supercompute resources uh, that can really help us, you know, go through these massive data sets and, and extract from them meaningful uh, information and knowledge. Uh, so we're using those tools all the time. We actually run a program at the Institute called the Frontier Development Lab, which is specifically designed to bring together machine learning uh, experts and, uh, and AI experts in, in teams with experts from different areas of science uh, that would relate to a particular topic that we're, we're interested in looking at. And these interdisciplinary teams, there's two computer scientists, two domain scientists, these are basically early career PhD researchers, and they come from all over the world, from India, Pakistan, Europe, Asia, the US, uh, everywhere, South America. Um, so uh, these researchers come together, they're, they're gathered in teams of four, and uh, they take on projects that have included um, earth science, exoplanets, astrobiology, even things like disaster response and, and recovery, uh, space medicine and astronaut health, heliophysics and so-called space weather or how the sun and our our ionosphere interact and impact uh, phenomena on Earth. So a wide ranging uh, topics of research that are all about leveraging the latest tools and techniques in machine learning and artificial intelligence. And in fact, it's, it's, um, it's also what we call a public-private partnership. The public partners include NASA and the U.S. Department of Energy, and um, we have private partners who also bring resources to the effort, including compute resources, subject matter experts, people who know a lot about uh, machine learning and AI algorithms and techniques, uh, technology companies that operate spacecraft. So our partners include uh, entities like Google Cloud, Lockheed Martin, the Mayo Clinic for medical 
research, um, NVIDIA and Intel and IBM and um, a company called Planet here in San Francisco. So um, it's really about, you know, public research funds and um, uh, and dollars and, and private enterprise and nonprofit research coming together to do meaningful work um, where, again, one of the underlying premises of the project is dealing with exactly what you asked about. How can we um, not only handle these large amounts of data that our research is uh, is generating, um, but also you know process that data into meaningful and impactful knowledge and, and results. So, uh, and, and increasingly we're doing that. We're doing that in SETI programs too, uh, where we think about, well, what if you know a pattern that might be evidence of extraterrestrial technology is is not you know the, the traditional narrowband carrier of a radio signal that we are familiar with here, um, but perhaps some other pattern in the electromagnetic spectrum that we can only really discern by using things like machine learning and AI uh, techniques. So uh, these are very powerful tools. Um, they're emerging uh, as having you know significant. Um, application to and importance to scientific research. And in fact, um, nowadays, increasingly, you know, young, younger folks studying astronomy, astrophysics, um, and, you know, most of the natural sciences are, are sort of by definition having to become pretty uh, uh, familiar with and capable with uh, machine learning and, and AI tools and techniques. That brings me to the next question. How are you involving the younger generation? Uh, that's a, another good question, which, of course, that's your job, asking great questions. <laughs> but um, the, uh, <laughs> where we have different education programs um, that deal with uh, many different age groups of, of young people. Um, in fact, you know, the, these education programs are, from my personal standpoint, one of the, the sources of great pride in, in the work of the Institute. I think they're so important. You know, science literacy is, is really a problem uh, globally. Certainly, it's a problem in, in our own country. And uh, anything we can do to help, um, you know, generate a, a science literate, um, you know, population is, is meaningful. And the advantage we have, or one of the interesting um, realities we have, is that we have a subject matter, i.e. space exploration and aliens and life beyond Earth and astronauts and all of these things, which is inherently interesting, I think, and fascinating to many people. And so the opportunity to take the context of space where, you know, you can talk to young people and you've got their attention because if you're talking about astronauts and aliens and space exploration, um, you know, they, they're excited and interested. And then you can teach them science um, and you can, you can engage them. So the premise of our education programs, again, is to take advantage or to leverage the fact that we've got an interesting topic that people young and old <clears throat> can sort of get excited about and curious about. And, and then we can teach science with context uh, because science is often taught in the abstract, which you know works for a, a small percentage of the population, but doesn't work for, for most people. And so if you have um, context like space exploration, like what what do you need to know and what problems do you need to solve if you want to have habitats on Mars or send a rocket to the moon or do things of this sort? So um, that's the underlying uh, thesis of our programs. And 
uh, we've had programs that have had sort of direct impact on young people. We had a program uh, funded by NASA called um, Reaching for the Stars, NASA Science for Girl Scouts, in which we developed um, activities and uh, sort of um, curriculum and, and challenges for young girls, uh, actually for all of the six different age groups of, of the Girl Scouts, which start at age you know five or six and go up to age 18. Um, and so we developed uh, these activities and projects where the girls could undertake these, these activities and then earn a badge. And these activities might relate to, um, you know, astronomy and astrophysics, you know, solar system, earth, moon, sun, uh, things of this nature. And um, when we uh, released the materials for the first three badges out of the six, which for the, for the youngest three levels of the Girl Scouts, in the very first year of that program, 65,000 girls took part and got their badges which was really exciting. And then uh, we, we, after development, released the, the badges for the older girls. And, and at this point, that program is generating about 100,000 um, you know, badge uh, projects each year for, for girls, which means you know, we're, we're reaching and impacting a, a large number of young girls, which, which is such a huge and important opportunity. Um, and, and hopefully, you know, this is the kind of thing that helps young girls think about science as, as a career uh, opportunity and uh, and leads them more of them into into stem sorts of careers and and stem interests so that's been a, a wonderful program um we have another program which is for um teachers uh in underserved school districts in the united states at the middle school and high school level uh which we call the airborne astronomy ambassadors program and it's a program where uh, a school district applies to the program to send teachers and uh, the, the school districts accepted into the program will send us, you know, half a dozen or a dozen teachers. These are middle school and high school teachers that might be teaching math or physics or chemistry or science or even astronomy. Um, and we give these teachers a three-month professional development course into a particular type of science, typical type of astronomy called infrared astronomy. And um, then uh, up until very recently, those teachers would spend a week uh, in Southern California with a NASA airplane called SOFIA, which stands for the Stratospheric Observatory for Infrared Astronomy. And SOFIA was this massive 747 with a two and a half meter infrared telescope in the back. So another way of describing it is like the coolest airplane you've ever seen. <laughs> and uh, the teachers would uh, spend a week at, at Palmdale. They would go on um, two or more flights. These are overnight sorties, 10 hours long each. They get to spend time with the telescope operators, the scientists on the plane, the flight crew, et cetera. And all of this experience is about, um, it's about immersion of, of teachers into you know, uh, actual scientific expeditions and activities. So they get firsthand experience of, of how science gets done in the real world, and they can bring that experience back to their classrooms. You know, these teachers would go back to their classrooms with a blue NASA flight jacket looking pretty pretty cool, and, uh, and they had to integrate their uh, experience into their curriculum. And this program has run for more than 10 years and has been extremely successful uh, independent third parties go in to measure the impact of um, performance on test scores, standardized tests, um, interest in STEM careers and, and further education, 
um, you know, science literacy and, and basic science knowledge. And in all cases, you know, the arrows point to uh, a program which is making a positive impact. So that's been, been wonderful. Uh, Congress and NASA finally grounded the SOFIA plane after many years of service. Um, and so we've, uh, we've modified the program now. Um, instead of the teachers going on this airplane, NASA happens to have another infrared telescope on the ground in Hawaii called the Infrared Telescope Facility. And uh, so now we send the teachers there, but the, the, the basic outline of the program is the same. And that program continues um, to be funded and to uh, bring lots and lots of teachers uh, into these science experiences and, uh, and have an impact. So we're very, very proud of that, uh, of that project. Uh, a newer project we have is focused on community colleges. Mm -hmm. And community colleges are a wonderful bridge to um, underserved communities, in fact, and a great stepping stone for many um, young people into uh, you know, four-year college programs and, and other parts of higher education uh, and open up new career opportunities. So community colleges are, are a wonderful resource. Many community colleges, most community colleges, um, interestingly enough, have a survey course or an introduction course um, to astronomy. And it's taught as a science course for non-science majors. And uh, these tend to be very popular. Um, in many schools, they're the most popular course in the whole school um, because they're sort of a fascinating topic taught in an accessible and, and fun way by you know, wonderful, wonderful teachers. Um, and, and again, these courses might be the first, last, and only higher education course beyond high school that many of the students taking them will, will ever have. So the idea uh, that we had was let's make these classes as impactful and as exciting and interesting as possible. Let's bring NASA scientists, uh, NASA funded researchers, astronauts and others into contact with the faculty, the teachers of these courses and uh, help them make more meaningful and exciting curriculum, even participate as guest lecturers uh, and things of that sort, bring telescopes to these, um, these classes. So we've partnered with a French company called Unistellar to provide um, telescopes to these community colleges, which are able to work even in, in so-called light polluted or urban environments. Uh, so it's been a wonderful program. By the time that program concludes in, I guess, three or four more years, uh, there'll be a, 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 around a thousand community college member entities. So uh, that's, that's very exciting. So. So our education programs are, are a combination of train the trainer, like working with, with uh, community college teachers or middle school and high school teachers or direct program engagement with young people uh, through partnerships with organizations like the Girl Scouts. We're exploring similar uh, programs to the Girl Scouts with international girl guides in places like South Africa and exploring opportunities in places like India and elsewhere. Um, so these programs are also, you know, scalable and transferable to, to other countries, other cultures, other languages, um, et cetera. So there's, there's, uh, so much more potential, uh, that lies ahead with these efforts. And that's a huge, uh, huge amount of work that is getting involved. And, uh, beginning of our conversation did talk about most of the funding comes from NASA, uh, for about 85% of it, right? Uh, centrally funded by the federal uh, government. And I guess that's where you get all the other programs being uh, 
funded. Uh, how do you basically look out for more funds? I mean, is it collaboration with the uh, uh, larger enterprises that helps you out? And what, what are the activities that you do in kind of a, uh, raising funds to support all these activities, which are going to be more relevant for uh, bringing curiosity and generating more uh, interest for uh, kids and younger generations uh, to take uh, advanced technologies as their careers? Yeah. Um, so the uh, those efforts are are quite varied in, in how we undertake them. But um, another education program we have um, that I hadn't yet mentioned is we have summer interns from undergraduate and community college institutions who come and spend the summer with our uh, scientists and work one on one with a given scientist supporting his or her research and. Um, uh, that's another program which is, I think, now going into its 15th year. Um, and while much of the funding for students participating in that program comes from the National Science Foundation, we also have private individuals, including members of the Board of Trustees of the Institute, who help fund um, additional students. So we can actually take more students than the NSF funding allows by uh, engaging private individuals or foundations um, the Moore Foundation from um, Gordon and Betty Moore, one of the uh, uh, founders of Intel, um, uh, has been supporting uh, some of these internships, for example. So there are, of course, different foundations, family foundations, et cetera, where you can actually, like you would for the government, write a proposal and, and submit a proposal to seek funding for different projects. And of course, different um, foundations, just like Again, uh, federal agencies have different areas of focus. Some are interested in life science, some in education, some in, in other areas. So you can sort of identify the foundations or organizations that are supporting programs of the kind we might do. They might even include things like our outreach programming, um, lectures and radio programs and podcasts and so on. So uh, when you identify those uh, organizations, you can submit proposals to them or contact them. Uh, a lot of it is also individual networks. You know, does anybody know anybody at this organization or that organization? Um, and our trustees come from uh, all over the world as well. We have board members in, in Asia, in Europe, in the East Coast, and here in the West Coast. And so we tap as well into their, into their networks to see if they know individuals or organizations uh, that can help fund some of the programs that we, that we develop. And we have a development team. Um, it's a small team, but but their job is to um, you know look for donors and and uh, foundations and and family foundations that are interested in the kind of work we do and engage those people. Um, and of course, like other nonprofits, uh, these efforts include you know sort of the lots of small donations kinds of activities, as well as you know the more meaningful major gift. Uh, opportunities that can fund uh, specific activities. So a lot of work goes into looking at all different types of, of funding sources. Um, again, they so they span from, from private individuals uh, through to foundations and, and other organizations up to, of course, uh, uh, government agencies. Right. And how do you think uh, our audience can engage and support the mission of City? Uh, well, of course, uh, you know, the, the easiest way is to is to visit the website, which is SETI.org. Um, and there are um, 
you know, there's a button, I think, right at the top there that says join us where, you know, you can click on that button and learn about how to get involved, either directly supporting programs that might be of interest to them. Or, um, you know, if you're a young student, you can apply for a summer internship. Um, if you've got brilliant ideas on on education and outreach programming that we can do, um, you know, we're, we're always looking for new ideas. We, um, we do produce a lot of material for the general public. Much of that material resides on our YouTube channel. So if you go to YouTube and, and type in SETI Institute, you'll see hundreds of lectures on everything from dark matter to in dark energy to how to look for life on other worlds to latest technologies and propulsion for rockets, et cetera. So vast range of topics um, in these public lectures. And every week we're interviewing scientists from the Institute and outside the Institute in what we call SETI Live programs. Those are also on our um, YouTube channel. And uh, we have a radio program and podcast called Big Picture Science, which really covers all branches of science. Um, and there's a wonderful show that uh, that includes every month a skeptic check, which is also an interesting uh, uh, perspective on on some some of the more nonsensical ideas that are out there. Um, so all of these things are available. We do a, a, a an electronic newsletter that you can sign up for on the website, um, and in your inbox once a week will be stories uh, of of work that we do at the institute and that our colleagues at NASA and other places do that's related to our work. Um, so there's lots of ways to both learn about what we're doing um, and, and get involved. And, and of course, if, uh, if one is so inclined to also support that work. We've even had um, donors join field expeditions to places like the Atacama Desert um, and the High Andes. Uh, so they've, they've helped fund those endeavors and then they've gone along with the scientists and and, uh, and and help support their work in the field. So lots of ways to get involved. And of course, we're, we're always delighted to make new friends. Absolutely. One last question, Bill. Uh, it's a very debatable question. Has SETI sure. ever encountered uh, any alien life or have encountered any UFOs as part of its uh, outreach? Uh, so the uh, people are all often asking about about UFOs, um, UFOs now often called UAPs or um, uh, you know un unidentified aerial phenomena. Uh, yeah, yeah. UFOs or UAPs are, are basically things that people observe in the skies, of, uh, you know, around our own planet that you know either look odd or behave or seem to behave in a manner that you know we're not familiar with in terms of conventional flight technology like balloons or airplanes, et cetera, or drones. Uh, and, and there's no doubt that, that these phenomena exist, um, that we see things and observe things uh, um, that we can't necessarily uh, understand. Uh, and of course, there's a, a large segment of the population who, um, you know, like many of us, when there are things we observe that we don't understand, we'd like to attribute something uh, to their their cause, and many people would like to believe that what they're observing is is evidence of extraterrestrial technology or intelligence. And uh, while I I can't definitively say that's not the case, I also can't definitively say it is the case. Um, I think in in terms of UFOs and UAPs, uh, one of the things that that we understand about them is generally these phenomena are all based on accidental observation. It could be by a pilot, it could be by somebody on the ground. They are not um, an observed phenomena that's a result of any scientific effort to, to study in them, um, which they could be. And we could also be involved in that. We have 
the technology to, for example, put cameras all over the world looking at our skies for interesting phenomena, but nobody's funding that kind of work. So we, we're not doing it, but but that could be done. Uh, but in the meantime, you know, it, it, they are difficult to study because, um, you know, there's the only evidence is, is observational. You know, there's some fuzzy, fuzzy videos or radar images from from airplanes or, um, you know, photographs. But uh, but they, they really don't lend themselves to to scientific scrutiny that that could definitively say where they come from or what they might be. So, you know, UAPs continue to be interesting um and uh and potentially important but um you know we we don't specifically study them because we don't have the funding to do that uh at the same time you know we it's it's important to realize how vast space is and um you know if if, if people are attributing these uh technologies to aliens one the first thing that we have to realize is the aliens are not coming from our solar system so there is no advanced technology elsewhere in our own solar system. So you have to go beyond. The closest place you could go would be Alpha Centauri, which is the closest star to Earth. It's at four, four light years away, 4.2 light years away. Um, and the fastest spacecraft humans have ever built is actually called the New Horizons spacecraft that flew past Pluto in 2015 and is, has also um, had rendezvous with Kuiper Belt objects at the edge of our solar system. Um, if you took that spacecraft at traveling at its speed, and you sent it to Alpha Centauri, it would take 17,000 years to get there. Uh, so, you know, the, the, the interstellar space is, is vast. Uh, even if you have light speed technology or fractional light speed technology, it's really difficult to imagine um, sending that technology uh, over these distances, uh, certainly with, with any biology on board, unless you're talking about multi-generational spacecraft, basically, you know, a city that's in space that uh, that can have generations of of individuals, um, you know, being born and, and dying on it uh, as it traverses, you know, massive distances. So, uh, I mean, the technologies, the, the, just the vastness of space and the challenges that imposes on, you know, visiting other worlds, distant worlds is, is something for people to keep in mind. Uh, and, you know, the idea of, of small objects darting around in our skies um, coming from great distances again would would sort of suggest well they they didn't come all that way on their own they would have had to have been part of some mothership or or other large craft um, again where there's we don't see any evidence of such things so so you know UAPs and UFOs are interesting um, uh, important but uh, but difficult to study scientifically unless you know funding is made available to do that kind of work but uh you know, at, it, at the same time, I, I think it, it is fair to say that uh, one of the reasons people are interested and, and have these beliefs is I, I think we all want to believe that we're not alone. And we often describe SETI as an endeavor, as a hopeful endeavor, because the statistical probability is that we, if we find evidence of an advanced uh, technological civilization beyond Earth, it's likely to have been around a lot longer than we have. You know, we've been only a technical civilization for about 100 years when when we invented the radio. So under those circumstances, you know, we're, we're looking at humanity on this planet um, where we are challenging um, our long-term survivability through things like climate change and, uh, you know, other potential disasters of pandemic or, or nuclear 
uh, conflict or just population uh, increase and handling, you know, our, our the waste products of, of, of human existence. So, um, you know, we're in what one might call our technological adolescence as a civilization. And if we find a civilization that has been around a lot longer than us, I think it, it's a hopeful message that says, you know, <laughs> with, with care and, and attention, you can uh, overcome, we can overcome some of the challenges of our own making um, that could potentially impact our long-term survival. Uh, so, so we look at SETI as, as, as hopeful. And I think people, um, you know, have their beliefs about UIPs in, in a similar way, because that's, it's a hopeful outcome to think, you know, we're, we're not the only place in this vast universe where, where life has emerged. So, um, I, I think these are, are important notions, but, um, the UFO, uh, arena, if you will, is, is kind of a different domain. Absolutely. And with that thought, uh, I wanted to thank you for being with us, Bill. Uh, a great conversation. I enjoyed it a lot. I think, I don't know how our one hour just went through. And uh, I wanted to thank you personally for being there and trying to understand and see how uh, there is some life out there and try and see if we could learn from out of it, right? I mean, it's, it's a great vision that you have. And thank you for taking that mantle and taking it forward with the rest of the scientists over there. Thank you very much, Bill. Thank you very much. Enjoyed this great deal and uh, really wonderful to be on Tal Radio. Absolutely. Same here. We are delighted to have you on board. Thank you. You have just listened to Tal Radio Podcast. For more podcasts, visit www.touchalife.org.